This is Ari Koretsky, and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know, an exceptional woman this week. Dr. Erica Brown is such a polymath. She is a biblical scholar, author of many different books, an expert in leadership, crisis management, a close disciple of the late and great Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, and the recent appointee as the director of a academic and leadership institute based out of Yeshiva University in New York that has just been founded in Rabbi Sachs's name and in propagation of his incredible and voluminous teachings. In addition, Erica has a fabulous and fascinating life story, her own personal Jewish journey, and as a member of the Silver Spring community, I'm honored to live in her environs, along with so many other incredible Jewish men and women. Meanwhile, a reminder is always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Follow or subscribe wherever you're listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever pods are cast. Comments or questions to Jews you should know at gmail.com. And now to our conversation with scholar, leadership expert, and wonderful Jewish role model, Dr. Erica Brown. We are here with Dr. Erica Brown, a Bible scholar, a leadership expert, noted and acclaimed speaker and author, and for me, a neighbor. So how are you, Erica? I'm fine. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Very I'm so nice happy to have you. And the truth is, you know, it, sometimes there's so many amazing people in the area where we live in, in the Silver Spring, you know, DC suburbs area. And uh, I've had a bunch of my my neighbors on my uh, hit list, so to speak, for, for years already. And I'm kind of slowly making my way through people. So you, you're definitely one of those who I've been thinking of, of speaking to for so long. And I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to finally do that. So Eric, I, as much as I you know, know about your public profile and I've, I've seen you in, in action, so to speak, and read some of your works, but I really don't know much about where you're from and, and what your upbringing was like. So tell us a little bit about that, that early origin story. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I mean, I should say in, in beginning that I just started in January, a new position as the vice provost for values and leadership at Yeshiva and Yeshiva University and running the uh, Sachs, the Lord, the Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs um, (laughs) Center for Values and Leadership in honor of my beloved teacher, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And uh, I guess I'll get to that when we talk about that. So that's been uh, sort of new and exciting. And I wanted to give you that update. So I was born in Pittsburgh. Dad was a professor at Carnegie Mellon. So that was my early years there. It was actually very meaningful for me. After the massacre in Pittsburgh, I spoke at the Shloshim. I went back to speak to uh, the community, which included not only members of shuls across Philadelphia, but also the police were there. There were firefighters there, and there were people from all over the community there. So that was quite extraordinary. I spent my early formative years in Europe. My father was a professor in Louvain in Belgium, and I was there and I spent a year in England. Uh, my English connections go deep. I've been drinking tea with milk for many, many years. Married, a, <laughs> a, ended up marrying a Brit. So uh, I was going to say, I think your, your husband is also uh, a Brit. Yeah. So yeah. 
What kind of professor was your father? My dad was a professor of industrial psychology. That's where he uh, he did his doctorate in Berkeley, and he did a lot of early management consulting. So the leadership work that I do comes to me sort of naturally in the blood. Interesting. And what was your father and your parents in general? What was their kind of Judaic background? Were they, you know, longtime Americans or had someone? Yeah recently come over from across the pond? My father's side was a longtime American. My mom was born in Poland, in Zakrzewik. She was a child survivor of the Holocaust. My, my grandparents' um, entire village was exterminated in one day. It was very traumatic. We lost a lot of members of our family. My grandparents had left their village um, my grandfather ended up walking into Auschwitz, actually. He had no food and he was uh, in no place to go. He was a tailor. That's how he kept alive. My grandmother was a seamstress and took my mother and they walked to various clients to try to hide for a period of time or get food. And that was very hard going. My my grandmother was in Maidanic and my mother was removed from the concentration camp and put in an orphanage in Lublin. Um, amazing thing is when my, when my grandparents were released, they were both in Auschwitz and they were released one day apart from each other, one by the British and one by the Americans, but they had no idea that the other was alive and they had no idea that my mom was alive. So they had already been married with a child before the war. Married with a child before the war. My grandfather had nowhere to go. And he's shared with me that one of the hardest things about surviving is that there's no place to go back to. You know, we tend to think of, well, at least you survived, but you survived for what? And right. uh, the Haganah, the um, Israeli army had come to to recruit and take survivors to Israel. So he was actually in a DP camp in Italy on his way to Israel. He heard that an orphanage had been let out in Lublin and he found my mom. And then um, within the year, they found my grandmother. That is just absolutely incredible. How old was your mother at this time? My mom was uh, probably, I want to say she was probably five or six. I, it, we actually had an incredible thing happen. Uh, I want to say it was two years ago that someone who was doing research on this particular orphanage contacted my mother. She found two women who were still alive in Israel and she brought them together, my mother and this other woman. And so for the first time, we saw pictures of my mom in that orphanage. And Ari, I have to say, I mean, something that was so moving my mom was holding a doll in this photo. I'd seen very few pictures of her. Sure. Certainly no pictures of her at that age. Um, some pictures of her when she came to the United States. And that doll was very significant for her. She felt like, oh, I had a toy. I didn't know that I had any toys. I had something. Right, right. right. And I had any any vestige of childhood. Um, and I, th I think in some way it's harder for the children because it's this legacy of absences. You know, it's all the things that you didn't even know children were entitled to, like safety and security. And she didn't speak for a long time because she was uh, she was silenced um, in order in, in hiding. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's complicated. It's complicated. Fabulous. But a miracle. A miracle. Oh, my goodness. Talk about a miracle. Absolutely. Does your mom have any memories of that time or she was just too young? I think she was young and I think a lot of those memories were blocked out Sure, because I think it's, it's hard to live. It's hard to walk and talk. And, you know, I, my grandparents were very, very funny. Uh, my grandmother lived to hundred, my grandfather till 95. They were married for 72 years actually, which was incredible. They had another child, my aunt Diane, uh, Tante Dina after the war. And so my grandparents spent, I mean, they, they didn't talk about it a lot. They talked about it more when we were older. 
as well, I think was fairly common as, as the years yeah. went on and more to grandchildren than to their children and, and yeah. things like that. How did your parents locate each other? Was it through one of those kind of lists that were posted or sent out? My grandparents did find each other through, through those lists, you know, people, you know, in the joint in, and, and others, yeah. Cafeterias and hostel, you know, they, they were, there were lists all over. So, um, I will say I've tried in many different ways to record their story as that we could share it with our own children and, and future generations, but they weren't historians, Ari. So they didn't know, it wasn't like it was a neat chronological timeline and everything got filled in neatly. Um, I think there are a lot of, a lot of nightmares and um, they were, you know, when you work hard to build a new family, you don't always want to go back to that dark place. They obviously occupy themselves with building a new life. And, you know, it sounds like you grew up, you know, in a family where uh, he was getting education and, and becoming, a, you know, intellectual and academic. And so you, you bounced around a bit. And I guess you had a, a pretty interesting perspective on Jewish communities around the world as you were growing up, being in Pittsburgh and then in Britain. And where else was I? In Belgium. and Belgium. And, and- That's what it was, Belgium. So there's, you got the European flavor and the unique British flavor as well. What was that experience like? Was your family engaged in their Jewish communities as they were traveling around the world? No, not really. When we came um, to settle in Deal, New Jersey, on the Jersey Shore, when I was, uh, I think we moved there when I was nine. We were members actually of a conservative synagogue, uh, mostly for us to, for, for the bar and bat mitzvah ceremonies. My grandparents had a chicken farm in Jackson, New Jersey, which was not uncommon for yeah, the Vineland area, right? And yeah, Holocaust survivors. Um, of course, you know, I think they lost money on it, and the chickens always got diseased, and the eggs didn't hatch, and whatever it was, you know, it was always a it was always a problem. But I remember growing up on their farm and playing in the empty chicken coops, and my grandparents helped build a shul. They were Ger Hasidim, and uh, my grandfather's father, my great-grandfather, was a Malamed. He was a teacher. But my grandfather was a little bit rebellious, and when they left Europe, they really were not Sabbath observant. They, you know, they worked hard. They were trying to rebuild their lives. Their friends were all Jewish. It wasn't that they were leaving their Judaism, but the appeal of religion really wasn't there anymore for them. I think it was a primary mother language for them, but I think it was a source of heartache too. Sure. There's that mixed uh, legacy and that probably conflicted feelings. I'm sure that they were, I mean, who can possibly judge such a experience? So obviously at some point, you know, through your travels or perhaps beyond, you began to discover your own uh, Jewish identity in in maybe a more, I guess, normative sense or in a more observant sense. At what point did you start exploring your own Jewish roots and so forth? Yeah. So, I mean, it it wasn't so much the Jewish roots because the Jewish identity piece was very strong, but it was a Holocaust identity. So it was, uh, you know, it was a dark legacy. And my grandparents, my grandfather would ran, run the Pesach Seder and uh, we have, you know, photos. Our family wasn't observant. And my grandmother felt like, you know, well, why is this story, the story that's celebrated, it should be the story of the Holocaust that's, you know, that, that we commemorate because that's the real story of Jewish identity. And often the Seder would break down into those conversations. I think I was always a seeker. And when I was, uh, was not a particularly popular child and I was a, a bookish child. And 
didn't have a wide social network. I went to a Hebrew school and a young man in the Hebrew school, Richard Guberman, who actually lives in Silver Spring right now. You know, he said, do you want to go to a Shabbaton? Like, no idea what a Shabbaton is. What is a Shabbaton? It's a Shabbat where there are other kids there. And this is a celebration of Shabbat. This was totally alien to me. But it was nice to get an invitation to something. So I joined and I really loved it. And and I got more and more involved. Uh, it was NCSY, National Council of Synagogue Youth. It is hard when you're not in a Jewish school to master all this. You know, you're watching kids and they all, they're all praying in Hebrew. And, you know, if you don't know the choreography, <laughs> like you're in a synagogue, and, I don't know, they're bowing now. I, I like, what do I have to do right now? And, uh, uh, but when you're young, some of that humiliation isn't isn't there. It's not the same edginess. You're sort of, I don't know what's going on. I ask a lot of questions. I started walking to my conservative synagogue. I had my bat mitzvah there, but I feel it didn't resonate with me. And um, Richard Goodman and his family, the Goodman family, uh, walked with me to shul. We had a four-mile hike to shul. We did that on Shabbat, and uh, we actually got to walk on the boardwalk past the Stone Pony where Bruce Springsteen often played. Um, <laughs> not that he walked with us to Shul or that I ever met him, but I'm a big, big fan. Before and, all the Syrians moved in, though. Yes, we were just at the beginning of a lot of the Syrians moving to deal that community was very important to me. I learned a lot about Judaism, and I learned a lot about a healthy community across the generations from observing the Syrian population very closely. The the house next door actually was owned by Ralph Lauren's brother's wife's parents um, and ended up getting <laughs> sold. Tana, we'll call them, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, so I grew up with them as neighbors and then and then became a Syrian um, shul. And I went to that shul very often. The Syrian community are amazing. They really give a lot, a lot of money to charity. So I learned a lot about the community's functioning. A lot of people weren't observant, but they always had Friday night dinner. And that was also interesting. There were certain mitzvot that were really, really foundational and important in terms of keeping families together. Yeah, but I was in Deal Public School. And then uh, in eighth grade, I went on to a prep school in the area, the Ranny School. I had a scholarship to go there, a merit scholarship. I was becoming more observant, but I had to go to school on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. That was, there was school then. And um, and if you took off a lot of days, you would forfeit your scholarship. And my my parents had divorced by that time. Uh, money was tight and that wasn't really an option for me. So, but by the second year, my sophomore year, I was really quite committed. And I just said, I'm not going to school. So I gave up my scholarship. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And I kind of there was obviously that. there was no sense from their perspective, the school's perspective to like, you know, I guess the sense of di- diversity and inclusion program wasn't. Yeah, that wasn't way. part of the program, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm 55. That wasn't part of the program. I'm sure now they could never get away with it. Right. Uh, But at that time, we had that conversation. And then they sort of backpedaled a little bit about me staying. And by that time, I think I had thrown the gauntlet down. I think I knew that it was time. Judaism is not, it's just, it's too deep a faith commitment. It requires too much knowledge to simply think that you're going to go to Shabbaton for the rest of your life. You know, you need to learn things. I really desperately felt I, I needed to make up all this lost time. I'm still making up lost time. <laughs> Aren't we all? So you switched to a day school at that point? So I, well, I went back to public school. We didn't live near a day school. So the problem was that I had to live away from home. 
And uh, at 16, I went to Frisch. I lived away from home. I lived with a family. And it was a wonderful, wonderful landing. I'm very, very grateful to Frisch. My Jewish studies classes were with freshmen who knew a thousand times more than I know. Very sweetly, two of them are actually, you know, senior administrators now at Yeshiva University. So I get to, I get to. It all comes back. Look at that. Right, right. Absolutely. We used to, we used to be near the lockers together and now it's, it's working together. So that was a really great landing for me on, um, I think it was a very warm landing. I will say that it's not always so easy standing on the outside. I'm very sensitive when I teach converts and people who are making their way, even within they're born Jewish and making their way, how intimidating it is, how much you think everybody else knows and I don't know. And I don't even know how I'm going to know. And what does it take? And how long is it going to take for me to catch up? I'm sensitive to that. And I think we close a lot of doors and unfortunately, sometimes we're just not as welcoming as we need to be. I know it's COVID now and no one's welcoming because no one's really, you know, everyone's masked and it's just a weird time. But, you know, sometimes Orthodox synagogues can be lonely places for people who don't find themselves in that inner nucleus, who know what to do and know how to do it. And yeah, and and we, we have to be sort of aware of that. If there's someone there we don't know, we need to be gracious and and introduce ourselves and and just make sure they feel comfortable and what do you need and how long have you been here and what can I help you with? And I think sometimes we, we, we've always, the Abrahamic tradition is always to be kind to strangers. And I'm not sure that we're living up to that all the time. And what's interesting is that in your own narrative, this young man, this boy, Richard Guberman, really did that for you. He was looking out for you and, and yeah. brought you in in that way. Yeah, for sure. And I, and, and, you know, you don't know the question that's going to change someone's life. You just never know. And it couldn't be, would you like to come over for Shabbat? And it can be, uh, would you like to meet someone? Um, I have a friend. I, I think people can always say, I'm not interested. But we need to kind of put all those bids out there, right? There, there are opportunities, there are invitations, there are possibilities. And sometimes a question lands on you at the right time, right? When you're a lonely kid and you're looking for friends and the peer group in school doesn't seem to be quite safe. And, you know, my parents were going through a difficult divorce. So there was a refuge there. And maybe in another time in my life, I wouldn't have felt it. But I've, I've come to really, really appreciate the way that that small questions uh, asked by strangers can change someone's life. Branching off into a whole other conversation, but briefly, you know, I, I think about very often, it, it may be that the people themselves that should be doing the asking are struggling with their own insecurities and their own challenges, you know? And so I meet many, many people that are much more traditional, much more observant, and yet they themselves have their own, you know, complications and their own yeah, sure. conflicts. And therefore they're not reaching out to others because the person won't want to hear from me or I'm insecure with my own identity. So it becomes this kind of Rorschach test of people's own Jewish identities, this whole question of right. being welcoming and, and having that open posture. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that Judaism... I'm a student of Rabbi Sachs's, and um, I think one of the things that was his great skill was to say, Judaism has a lot of solutions to some of society's greatest ills, and we can't keep those gifts to ourselves, right? The gift of the Sabbath, right? The gift of a time period in which we can reflect and connect and disconnect. As those are things, why, why do we have to keep them to ourselves? And And you're right. People sometimes have lots going on that they got to work through on their own. And therefore, um, why should I suffer you? Or why should I invite you into this complication? As opposed to saying, 
people are autonomous. You present a buffet of options and um, people are adults. They'll pick and choose when they're ready. I think a lot more people than we realize are seeking meaning, are seeking solace, are seeking community, are seeking friendship, are seeking transcendence. And it's our job to share. I see it on campus all the time. You know, a friend who's involved in a program might be embarrassed or afraid to ask their their own friend about getting involved. But then if, you know, if I go over and ask the friend, they're like, sure, that sounds great because they just, everyone kind of assumes like I'm interested, but nobody else is really, you know, right. more people than we think actually are. And if they're not, they can just tell you, you know? Yeah. And when we say like, oh, do you want to come to this concert? Right. Do you want to go to Soul Cycle? I know in my, you know, my own profession of adult education, the number one way we get people to classes is the power of invitation. And that's true for virtually every aspect of life is the power of invitation. And again, we're almost projecting a no, as opposed to saying, sometimes it's going to be a yes. And sometimes you were there at the very moment when someone needed that invitation. Good message for fundraising as well. You know, we project no's onto people <laughs> before they can uh, give that gift. But, you know, what I'm really interested, Erica, is that you, know, you were an NCSY kid, which I, I myself was as well. I had a tremendous influence from NCSY and I was on the national board and all these different, uh, you know, deep engagements there. And for me, I would say my involvement there primarily invested me with an emotional, a deep emotional attachment to Judaism. But it was only a little bit later as I you know, grew older that sort of the intellectual bond formed and that you know, matured into a fuller understanding and, and, and ultimately a more complicated you know, relationship with Judaism that's much more informed and, and nuanced. You, know, you described yourself as a, as a bookish kid, and yet you were also drawn to sort of this powerful emotional environment. So at what point you know, did you evolve in your awareness or, or connection to Judaism and sort of allow your bookish side, your intellectual side, kind of catch up with the emotional connection that had forged through NCSY? I guess I don't see it quite as disparate maybe as you do. For me, I was really drawn to Jewish ideas, right? It's true that I, I saw in people singing and dancing. I mean, in public school, who's like, dancing in a single gender circle and singing a song, you know, so that was interesting for me. And there's a lot of power in music and there's a lot of power in community and wanting to belong is so powerful. But there was another side, um, you know, I'm on the introvert scale in the Myers-Briggs, which probably surprises some people, but doesn't surprise me at all. And I've always been nourished by reading. And so Judaism opened up, I mean, how many books are written on Judaism? You know, when you start, you're just in that black hole of knowledge, right? You're on the edge and then jumping in. So I would say that that was one of the drivers for me of wanting to go to day school. I know that there are other people for whom Judaism is largely emotional. For me, it was a really powerful combination of the behavioral aspects, the cognitive aspects of learning, and the emotional aspects of belonging. It wasn't as if, oh, it was all emotional, and then came the intellectual. And then as I think no matter what I did, I, I, I'm sure that I would have been connected to a university because that was just in many ways, that was always my path. School was a place where I knew how to succeed. I wasn't really successful in any other way. And so I have three skill sets. I write, I teach, and I read. That's all I know how to do. And so school has always been the natural place. Getting teacher approval, especially when you're not a popular kid, that's, you know, it's very validating. So staying in school, school is always the safe place. And Judaism 
does great in school. Meaning, I mean, there's there's no shortage of things to learn, ideas to master, ideas to never master. Um, you know, I, I'm always embracing how little I know. And that's always a catalyst to knowing more. The intellectual and the emotional are, are very intertwined for me. Did you know early on that you were going to make a career out of Jewish ideas, Jewish education? Uh, it's a good question. You know, I definitely had the Laura Ingalls Wilder, you know, always want to be a teacher, sort of little house in the prairie, which dates me. But I did toy with other things, with uh, journalism. I spent that five seconds as a philosophy major thinking, oh, maybe I should go to law school. But no, um, <laughs> you know, I because I, I, I just think everyone in humanities sort of says, oh, vocationally, what will that look like? I did I did think a lot about journalism school and I do a lot of journalistic writing. So I never really let go of that. While I was in high school and college, I was an editor in the school paper. I, I, it was important for me to keep the, the writing part of my life um, very much alive. Um, yeah, so I don't know if that's an answer to your question. So did you spend uh, sort of that dirigeur year in Israel after high school? And then did you go on to, where did you go on to university? I was a student in Berea, Mechlela Berea, which turned into Midrash at Lindenbaum. I was the first of the post-high school, it was the first year of the post-high school program. Wow. Uh, Rabbi Chaim Bravender was a very, and and is a very, very important influence in, uh, in my life. Malka Bina, who was, uh, went on to found Matan, and she actually set me up with my husband, who was a Shiva Rakotel student. So the, that year was a really important growth year for me. In fact, I, I went back a second year, which was almost unheard of at that time. And then after college, I went back for another six months. Uh, the baby drash was such a magical place for me. It was a good place. It was also a place that, you know, I had this recurring dream that all the shelves of the baby drash were falling down on me. And that's not hard to, you don't have to be Freud to interpret that dream. You know, it's, <laughs> it's hard when you've got a lot to catch up on, you know, it, it came easy to some people. It didn't come as easy to me. Well, you had certainly had the passion and the desire to catch up. And I think we've seen over the years that people who have that intense want, you know, are able to make up for many, many years of perhaps, you know, s- subpar engagement in, in Jewish day school by, by their peers you know, in, in one or two years in Israel. So, well, I, you know, I have to say, I mean, I throughout my Jewish path, when I when I started taking it seriously, I had the most magnificent teachers, you know, in Frisch, in Yeshiva. I went on to Yeshiva University. I went to, to Stern College as an undergraduate. I was so grateful. I, I think I had the best Jewish studies teachers a person could have. I, Who were know, some I, of the, the highlights? I don't want to uh, leave anyone out, but... I had uh, Rabbi Bramander. I had uh, Manka Bina. Um, I had Daniel Levy. I had Rabbi Moshe Khan. I had Rabbi Shalom Carmi. I had Dr. David Schatz. I, you know, I went on to study at Harvard with Isra Tversky, Rabbi Isra Tversky of blessed memory. I studied under Arthur Leslie when I was working on my grad. I studied under under Rabbi Sachs for many years. So I, I felt I was really at the feet of a parade of remarkable scholars and uh, some incredible names. (laughs) No, no, I I don't take that lightly. And it was, I think that when you're sitting in the presence of greatness, you get a glimpse of what greatness looks like and it creates lots of aspirations and lots of reverence. Yeah. And I think reverence is something that's uh, perhaps in short supply nowadays. And, and often when, you know, people express reverence and then it, it sometimes can be dashed by, scandal or, you know, uh, by, by people disappointing them. And that's a whole other topic that I know you're, uh, you have a lot to say on, but did you go straight from Stern college to Harvard to, to do a PhD? What was your, 
was kind of your early career development? No, I, um, when I finished uh, Stern, I went back to Israel to learn for another six months. I got married that summer and went to London. I was a philosophy student uh, for a hot second. Um, I was going to do a master's, but I, I didn't like the program. And I ended up in the Institute of Education doing a master's uh, in University of London in, in religious education. You can actually do a degree in religious education. And then um, I was teaching at Jews College. And Rabbi Sachs was the... Rabbi Sachs was there, right. He was the principal at the time at Jews College. So I got to study with him. And you have to imagine that the classrooms were very tiny, and but his presence was just so immense. And I, I got a front receipt to that. So I, uh, you know, he would give a public lecture. I was always interested. I, I, I taught quite a bit in his own synagogue, Marble Arch at the time. Uh, spent some holidays there, Shabbatot there. And um, so I, I got a lot of teaching experience very, very quickly. Um, and those years in England were really, really important in, in terms of my own growth. And then Rabbi Sachs was my master's thesis advisor. Um, the second year I did a master's with him. Incredible. Were you able to forge a personal relationship as well and him, his family and, and so forth? Um, so Lady Elaine actually did study with me at Jews College, which was wonderful. Um, and I, I did get uh, opportunities to, um, you know, to spend time with their family. And um, but 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 not, you know, I would say, you know, I was I was very young. My husband was a medical student at the time. Um, you know, I, I I understood that he was on the fast track to greatness. Um, uh, we, we made Aliyah actually after two years there. So. I think that portion of the chief rabbinate was not was not a time when I was living in England and I could benefit. I always I was came when Rabbi Sachs came to Israel, when Rabbi Sachs came to Boston, when Rabbi Sachs came to Washington. I was I was trying to uh, you know to to hear him and to connect and obviously read his books. So at some point, obviously you moved back to America. You know, so you made Aliyah, but I guess that that didn't stick. It seems like for the long term. God willing, maybe one day we get the return, as as I hope we all will. But you came back and you began a series of very, very interesting positions. And we just have such limited time. I, I, each one probably would, could be ours uh, in its own right. You know, when I first met you, you were an in-house scholar for the Jewish Federation of Greater Washington, which itself is a very unique position that I don't know if it even exists in most federations. But you were at the nexus of, of community affairs and, you know, learning and teaching with a very broad cross-section of people, most of whom did not necessarily share your you know, personal uh, religious persuasion in terms of observance. And then you went on to uh, to found a center at George Washington. So if you got to give us like a, a broad overview of some of the, the major stops along the way, uh, and then of course, we'll get to what you're doing now. I don't actually know if that's interesting for for anyone, but we lived in Israel for four years. My husband wanted to do a residency in something that was not a specialty in Israel. So we moved to Boston for his residency, and that's where I started my PhD. And I started in the Combined Jewish Philanthropies, the Boston's Federation, as a scholar in residence. And there was a lot of, I mean, there's great work to do in that position because here you are working for a philanthropy and at a time where, again, people are seeking, and I had the opportunity to teach in the Massachusetts State House, and um, you know, in boardrooms in Fidelity, and you know, like a number of sort of, you know, important and interesting spaces, is sort of taking Torah out into the public and seeing how it influences and challenges. Uh, we created a program 
We had about a hundred people every other week. Uh, and the program is actually still going. It's probably over 20 years old. The Genesis Forum, where we were in downtown Boston and people would come and we would learn with them. And it was phenomenal. We'd you know fill up the room and we understood that Judaism had an important role to play in shaping and challenging and provoking and consoling. And uh, I'll just give you one little example. My my partner there, Rabbi uh, Samuel Chill of Blessed Memory, he was a rabbi of a very, the largest um, conservative synagogue, Temple Emanuel in New England. And Rabbi Chill would always say, Erica, you never tell anyone to do anything. And I just said, who am I to say any of those things? But anyway, it was Y2K. It was the year we were turning over to 2000 and everybody, there was a lot everything's of Everything's going to melt down. And be everything's going to melt down, right? The, tech, right? the world's coming to an end. I remember exactly where I was sitting Friday night. I think it was a Friday night that well, I, think I was sitting by an, by an oneg at some rabbi's house. Like everyone's looking at the walls, you know, is, is the oven going to fall out or something? Right, exactly, exactly. So so we were in the same boat, but I was just probably, you know, on the, uh, uh, I was different places in the East Coast. Anyway, so um, it's Wednesday and I'm giving my Genesis Forum talk and I'm giving it about Jewish time. And I'm citing something about Nachmanides. And, and towards the end, I, I just kept Rabbi Chill's voices in my head. And I talked a little bit about the fact that it was falling out on Shabbat. And Shabbat is this enduring marker of Jewish time. And my face got all red. And I said, you know, before you go out to celebrate for New Year's, you might want to light Shabbat candles. Now, I, I just, I wouldn't, it just was so out of character for me to say anything. And I said, and if anyone wants to come to my house for Shabbat, you're invited. And a bunch of people contacted me and said, it was the first time I lit Shabbat candles. And again, we'll go back to the earlier part of our conversation about the power of invitation. I think I, was, I held back the intellectual part of me felt like I'm going to talk about something. And if you want to integrate it, you'll make those connections. But I needed to do that for people is to, is to suggest maybe there's a ritual that can help you. And by inviting people, we're not coercing people. We're just saying, this is something, and I'm going to tell you my story. This is why it's meaningful for me. And you can take that where you want it to go. And so when we moved here, we went back to Israel for another two years. Uh, three of our four children are born there. And Israel is a very central and defining part of, of who we are uh, as a family, as Jews, and, and as just, just you know, and and it's our homeland. It's our, it's a central address for Jewish identity. Um, we we did come back here. Those that'll be a, a separate conversation. But we did come back here 20 years ago. Actually, um, my husband had a job at George Washington University, and we moved here. We didn't really know anyone. I mean, marginally knew people, uh, but found it to be a very warm and open community. And after a while, I I had presented to the Federation here what I was doing in Boston. And uh, so there was more interest in it. There was interest in doing leadership development. Uh, that makes sense because it's the nation's capital and leadership is important. So I had done some work in that space. I did more work in that space. And the Federation was a very important home for me here. You've written a couple of books along the way as well. Did that start concurrent to the Federation position? Or did that grow out of your, your doctoral work? So I did complete my doctorate when I was here um, in Maryland at um, Baltimore Hebrew University, which is now part of Towson. I worked in the 16th century in a commentary on Esther. I think the book writing started in large part because that was the way I reconstituted the intellectual community that I didn't always have in the philanthropic setting. I was always interested in a research project. So this is the way I keep myself out of trouble, Ari. Uh, we all find our different ways and writing books was mine. Uh, it was either the library or the nightclubs, Eric. I could tell those are the, yeah, exa- those that, are the that was, choices. 
every night I was like, what's it going to be, Erica? Uh, now I'm a morning writer. So the, the, the writing was important. It was, it's an important way for me to learn. I think when, uh, for anyone who's a teacher, you know that when you have to teach something, you have to know it in a different way. And when you write it, you have to know it even deeper than when you're teaching. So it was a really a, a very deep way for me to do my own learning. Right now I'm, I'm working on a commentary on Kohelet on Ecclesiastes. It's, it's a pretty mammoth undertaking. And, uh, you know, it's, it's the way I spend my mornings, you know, that's, uh, which, you know, some people might find it a little bit depressing uh, to spend your morning that, that existentially sort of. It's all meaningless anyway. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, it's right. Exactly. And actually, you know, one of the lines in the book is Larbot's Farim in Kate's, um, you know, for the making of books, there is no end. So, uh, so, you know, what's, what's the point of the book? Uh, uh, and I, and I've asked myself that many times, but yeah, it's, um, so it's, it's for well, me. You've also a, written more widely on, on more, I would say popular issues, right? Things like yeah. a scandal and, and, and yes. faith in crisis, communities in crisis and, and things of that nature. Yeah. What are, have those been born of just personal interest or events that you've experienced in your own life? Yes. Scandal is not a personal interest. Um, it's, it, it's, um, you know, I, I think, and, and maybe this comes from, from someone who, uh, you know, obviously I became observant when I was, was very young. So I, I can't, I wouldn't call myself a Balchuva in the traditional sense of someone who is, you know, in, in their adult years, I've, I've grown up and I've had the benefit of a lot of Jewish education, but that there is some outside piece of this where you're a participant observer mm. and you can see sometimes things that other people see, but they're not willing to actually name. And I think it's important. I'm, you know, I read broadly uh, in terms of newspapers, the New Yorker, the New York Review of Books, and I'm, I'm trying to podcast. I, I, I'm sort of listening. What's what are people talking about? What's going on that that needs a response? You know, when I'm writing, it's usually a problem that's bothering me, and I'll sit on it for a long time, and I'll talk to people about it, and I'll read a lot about it, and then comes the writing. Fantastic. So I know that you launched a leadership center out of an academic institution, which is, which is also quite, I think, unusual for someone of your you know, personal background. And I think academia is generally regarded as somewhat hostile to, you know, unless we're talking about a religious university, you know, a Bar Ilan or, or Yeshiva University, but to be in a secular academy and to be coming from a, a person of your religious commitments, was that sort of strange bedfellows? And how did that emerge? And, and how, did, how did it succeed? Yeah. I don't see knowledge as anything secular. I, I see knowledge, the pursuit of all knowledge as a sacred endeavor. And, and so I, it, my world isn't bifurcated in quite, in quite that way. I do, do think it's, it, it's unusual, but I think there are leadership centers in a lot of universities. It's become more popular as a discipline. We worked at the Mayberg Centers, you know, deeply, deeply grateful to the Mayberg family and to the Mayberg Foundation for seeing the importance of this and for all the work that they've done at, at, at George Washington University, including um, their support of the Hillel and, and their new building and all that, that Lewis Mayberg, who's a graduate, uh, invested in in creating a Jewish community in the, the beautiful new Hillel building that was just erected there. And yeah, fantastic. And I, I do think there's something very powerful about studying leadership and then being able to walk a few blocks to the Lincoln Memorial and you know, and 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 those memorials continue to be very inspiring for me. People who had to make very very difficult decisions, lots of personal sacrifices at inflection points in our country's history. So I think there's something quite natural about studying leadership, and I think 
that the religious traditions um, that, and mainstream and not only Western faiths, but, uh, you know, but Buddhism um, and other wisdom traditions think a lot about leadership. They think about succession. When you have an ancient tradition, how does it live? It lives because there are heroes and leaders and thinkers and followers who believe in it and believe in continuity. And so I actually think that we don't think enough about the intersection of faith and leadership. If we did, we might have different political leadership right now. And by faith, I don't mean an evangelist commitment or sort of towing certain line. I mean, what are you here to do? Who are you here to serve? How are you here to serve? Where's the role of your ego? How do you put limitations on the drive of the ego? How do you control your own narcissism? Those are really profound leadership questions. Then there's just, how do you manage difficult leadership situations? How do you create cultures of change? How do you create environments where feedback is valued, uh, both given and taken? So I think that the role that religion plays is very, very profound. And I, I really do believe in some way the Torah all of the Torah, I mean, by that, I mean the the, the Tanakh, the, the entire corpus of the Hebrew Bible is really invested in this question of leadership. And there's virtually no space where leadership issues don't appear. I mean, I know that the the whole notion of uh, you know, Robert Greenleaf's servant leadership mm-hmm. the concept emerged you know, only a, a few decades ago. But if you read Rabbi Sachs, you know, as, as I've been blessed to do over many, many volumes of his, and that's a recurring theme as he traces the core principles of leadership from ancient history, you know, through the, the Torah and, and all of our wisdom. And I imagine that his was a great influence on you in, in this regard as well. I do have to say, I think that he started writing more discreetly about leadership um, probably after I did, but of course, it's always better than I did. But um, well, then he got it from you, Eric. Come on. <laughs> I don't know. That, that he certainly did not do. I mean, I think his, you know, his field is, is immense. And I think um, he's done a lot of work in ethics. And my guess is, although I wish I, there's so many questions, Ari, I wish I could ask him so, so many, um, so many questions of guidance that I wish I could ask him now. I think that he saw naturally that this was where people needed religion sometimes the most, um, where communities might have been falling apart, where in Jewish institutions and nonprofits were struggling, uh, boards were struggling to function well. Who runs institutions today? You know, and, and COVID is presenting a whole new host of leadership questions of people having compassion and decision-making burnout, right? There is fatigue out there. There is a sense, I, I, I wasn't trained for this. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to negotiate this uncertainty. You know, in, in halacha, we have a concept of a sveik sveika, right? A doubt on top of another doubt. We are just living in a, a mountain of these kind of doubts right now and disappointments. And it's very hard to lead people in times of uncertainty. So, you know, then you you go back, I I wrote a book on leadership in the wilderness and and that was really about leading in uncertain times. And um, I've been thinking a lot about that book and and teaching from that book during COVID, because I think we arguably, we need good leadership more than ever. And there are a lot of people saying, I'm out, I'm done. I, you know, it, when I speak to different federations, as I, as I, as I do often in, in the evenings, like annual meetings and other things, I always tell people, if leading is hard right now, you know that it's time for you to stay in. Because this is when we need you the most. This is not the time to say, I can't do this anymore. 
Um, find that extra ounce of energy, find the cheerleader, find the support, think more critically about your self-care. We need you right now. We really do. How did this latest position, Hugh University, this new Sachs Center for Leadership, how did that materialize? Was it something that was in the works for a while? And, and how did you connect? Maybe it was the old locker room buddies in the, from Frisch that, that drew you in, but how did you, you know, become a part of this? No, there's, there's no locker room story here. Um, <laughs> you know, I was in, I was in Jerusalem in August and um, Rabbi Dr. Ari Berman, who's the president of Bushiv University, asked to meet with me. I really had only met with him once before. So he was not, or, or we had many intersecting organizations that we were involved with, uh, including Yeshiva University and also the Jewish Center in Manhattan, but our timing had never worked. So I, I didn't know him personally. And, uh, you know, we were in Jerusalem and uh, we were actually in Ghana, Pamon, and uh, we, we were meeting outside because of COVID. And uh, he told me about this center. I was very excited. And I, I still didn't understand that, you know, that he was, he was having the conversation. <laughs> that's like a theoretical, you know. Like- <laughs> right. He's like, oh, that's a great idea. Um, and why am I here? Um, and he, he asked me, you know, is this something that you'd like to do? And I, you know, I, I, I was building a center that I spent five and a half years at it in, in GW and, um, and proud of and, and connected to, but I, I will share that Rabbi Sachs's death was quite shattering for me. Um, personally, I have lost many teachers. I lost a number of teachers during COVID, which I think is, is, is very hard because you can't properly grieve people. You know, there's, there's no funeral that you can go to and um, you can't say goodbye properly, I think. So I, I when he asked me, had it been an, another circumstance, I, I, don't, I don't think I would have been interested. But I think I think the Rabbi Sachs component of this was was so profound for me um, in large part, because when I wrote my, when I wrote a eulogy for him um, that was published, I think the last line was about the work that he left for the rest of us to do. And then now someone is saying to you, well, here's, here's the work to do. And it, it just felt sort of wrong to, to turn away from it. Um, it, I, I felt that it was a moment to, um, to honor him and, um, it's interesting that I've spoken to other students of his who who feel very similarly, and many of them are taking different roles currently. You know, Rafi Zaram, uh, Rabbi Rafi Zaram, Dr. Rafi Zaram, who's in um, the London School of Jewish Studies, which is what Jewish College became, and now he he occupies the the Rabbi Sachs uh, chair there. When he spoke, I believe it was last week or the week before at his investiture, he said, this is the privilege of my life. And I, I, I very much feel that, um, that um, I wish Rabbi Sachs had lived. I wish he were alive. I wish I could talk to him. I wish I could ask for his guidance. Um, I understand that, that in his absence, there's work to do. Not I, I can't step into those shoes, but I can facilitate conversations um, and continue the conversations that he started. And we can, you know, propagate his teachings and let more people know about them. And um, yeah, I just, I just um, completed an article in draft form on Torah and Chachma, his approach to, um, to general and Jewish studies, you know, when you review his corpus, it's immense. Uh, Unbelievable. It's just overwhelming. Yeah, it's, it's astounding overwhelming. what he was able to write. I mean, each, even the introductions, let's say to his machsers, you know, his, his prayer books on, on the holidays. I mean, each one is like 
a work on that holiday. And that's one after the other. After the, I mean, it's just astounding. And it's amazing at how, I mean, he was so young, I mean, relatively yeah. speaking. And think about what he could have achieved in another, it's almost like, you know, our generation didn't deserve, you know, such a prodigious output that he could have. Oh, I, I, I actually, I'm going to, I'm going to disagree with you. I think our generation did deserve him. I think that's why the outpouring of loss was so great because I think he was the moral beacon of faith for so many people, people who were not Jewish. You know, we'd talk about his writing, his intellectual output, his teaching, but he was also a real mensch. And um, the number of people who reached out to him, you know, there were people who wrote to Lady Elaine Sachs from prison, right, who had heard him lecture, um, who had given, he had given them hope. I, I think there's, that I'm only starting to become aware of how many people he touched and in what way. And it's not our usual suspects. You know, he, he promoted faith, um, not only Judaism, but the importance of faith in people's lives, the importance of community, the importance of worship, these are all the points of covenants, I think, and, and keeping promises and kindness. And, you know, this, there's a lot to do. I mean, I could spend a lifetime doing this. <laughs> I wouldn't cover it. And he did it in a way that that gave people a sense of security and grounding in their own faith. You know, as yeah. people, you know, we living through the sort of the new atheism movement and and all the the, the writings that have come out from Dawkins and Hitchens and right. all of that, you know, there was one of the few credible voices that people, you know, discovered that they felt really solidified their own faith uh, commitments, which I, I think is Absolutely. that that alone is, I think, you know, the, the work of a lifetime. He wasn't afraid to take those people on because I think he felt that we can give people something that they lack and that they want. You can always reject it, you know, but it's there for the taking. And um, one of the things that, you know, a lot of times you'll hear scholars and you'll say, wow, they're so smart. But Rabbi Sachs's gift was that he made you feel smart. Mm. This wasn't about his brilliance. It was really about his, he introduced people to, you know, they might ne never, uh, you know, read anything by Jeremy Bentham or Alistair McIntyre or, or um, Sherry Turkel. It was, there were all kinds of sociologists, scientists that he cited. He wasn't saying that's, that's my department, you know, and I, you know, I'm the sage on the stage. I think he made people feel smart um, by reading him. And you, you felt you were smarter when you left his classes, when you finished his Parsha sheet. And I think that was a gift. It's it's very rare. It's very rare. Just in closing, Erica, what, what are the objectives of this new center? Is it designed to cultivate leadership among the next generation of you know Jewish students, scholars? Is it to propagate Rabbi Sachs' teachings, kind of like the uh, the Rabbi Soloveitchik, you know, publishing house? Like, what what exactly are you meant to be doing in this position? Yeah, uh, I mean, um, check all those boxes, Ari. <laughs> um, you know, I'm very grateful to Andrew and Terry Herenstein for, for starting this uh, center and for realizing uh, just how much Rabbi Sachs' teaching belong at a place like Yeshiva University. We have just launched a leadership scholars program for five young men and five young uh, women undergraduates at Yeshiva. We'll be introducing a book prize soon, uh, which I'm very excited about. We'll be working with. Erica, you can't win it. You know that. You know that. You no, know, I know. I know. Employees, I just employees want to make sure. Employees don't qualify. <laughs> employees don't qualify. It's like the radio prizes. If you work for the radio station. Yeah. I don't think I'd win it anyway, but um, we'll be working, developing a graduate 
cohort from Yeshiva University's graduate schools to do work on leadership. We'll be holding conferences and hopefully responding to issues where Judaism can shine a light on ethics and values and leadership and doing leadership training uh, on all levels um, to alumni and, and, the, and the broader Jewish community. You know, so stay tuned. We've done a lot in the first uh, three weeks. Um, you know, we'll be we'll be doing more. Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot of good work to do. Are you going to be all remote? Are you going to be spending a lot of time on the train, like uh, the Joe Biden uh, myth? <laughs> uh, I think Joe Biden takes the cell, and I'm just on the I'm just on the regional. <laughs> but, uh, it's a good thing that I love Amtrak so much. So uh, it's it's, uh, it's good. We're 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 managing the Northeast corridor. So make sure they upgrade their Wi-Fi connection. A little little spot. No, actually, I got to tell you, for a writer, not having good Wi-Fi is an extra bonus. Really? Okay, you got the focus. You got the, the quality. You got the focus. You can't do those emails. So but you, you can't Google any you know, research any. You you write it in a note and you look it up later. Okay, there we go. We got we got. When I started, there was no Google. That's, <laughs> I don't know how anyone <laughs> did anything to be honest. You actually asked. You actually have to know things back then. It's kind of yeah. kind of crazy. Well, Eric, where can people learn more about the center and, and your work in general? Is there like a, you know, besides just Google, is there like a, a central clearinghouse, a place where all of so your I, works? Uh, are? I mean, I have my own website, uh, Erica with the C and uh, but we're we're hopefully within the next week we'll be putting up the Sachs Herenstein website, the Office for Values and Leadership, uh, working on it uh, just today. So hopefully it'll be up soon. And um, yeah, it's been a delight talking to you, Ari. Wonderful. Erica Brown, a scholar and author, and now the driving force behind the fabulous new leadership center and initiative out of Yeshiva University. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Take good care. Bye now. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.